All right, good morning. Great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezra chapter 9. So you go to the Old Testament, you go to the book of 2 Chronicles, then you go to Ezra. If you get to Nehemiah, Esther, Job, you've gone too far, but we are in the book of Ezra this morning. It's our habit here at Fremont E. Free to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. This morning that means we've landed in Ezra 9 verses 1 to 5. Certainly every time we open the Word of God, we have an expectation that He will speak. And so I'm going to pray and ask that that would happen this morning, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we ask for your help this morning. We know that we are easily distracted creatures. We know that our hearts are easily led astray. We know that even in this moment, it's easy for us to focus on other things. But we also recognize that what we need in this moment is to hear from you. And so we're just pausing here before we open your word to ask for your help and to pray for your spirit to be at work this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would encourage us with the hope of the gospel, and that you would give us a greater desire to bring praise and glory and honor to you. So Lord, we are pausing here because we need your help desperately. And God, we are praying that you would work powerfully through your word this morning. We do have an expectation that you will work. So please, Lord, be at work this morning in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, from a Christian perspective, it certainly seems that there's a lot to be concerned about in the world right now. Whether it be ongoing conflict in the Middle East or Ukraine, or shifting societal norms that are contrary to the teaching of God's word, or political leaders that are overstepping their bounds and exercising their authority in wicked and selfish ways. The fact of the matter is that there are some deeply troubling things taking place in our world currently. And I've even mentioned the global persecution of the church, which is widespread and in some cases incredibly violent. So yes, I think there are some things for us to be concerned about out there in the world. And I'll be the first to admit that I often find myself fretting about those external challenges. I see the dark clouds on the horizon and I wonder, where are we headed? What will this world look like in five years or ten years? What will it look like for my grandkids or my great-grandkids? No doubt I'm concerned when I see the direction our world is headed and I'm guessing you might be too. What if I told you this morning that perhaps the greatest danger that we face as the church is not actually lurking out there in the world, but perhaps the greatest danger that we face is the one that lurks in here, in the church I think it's easy for us to look at the world and see it as the boogeyman, to rail against the current status of things, to fret about the direction we're headed in, to turn on the TV and rail about the direction our world is headed, to denounce the ungodliness that is so obviously present. That's easy for us to do, but it's much harder for us to admit that there's a potential boogeyman lurking in here. Throughout Scripture, it seems that the greatest threat to the people of God is not typically the opposition they face from the world, but rather their own lack of faithfulness and devotion to God. I think that's actually something we see in the book of Ezra. In the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, the people of God face significant external opposition. As the people of God move back into land from exile, and they begin the work of rebuilding the temple, the opposition that they face from the world is tangible. There are real enemies opposed to the work of God and the people of God, and we see that in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. But I think you could argue, and I'm going to make the argument this morning, that the greatest threat to the people of God in the book of Ezra doesn't come from those external enemies in the first six chapters. Rather, the greatest threat to the people of God is one that's cataloged in the final two chapters of the book, including in our passage today. 
In the last two chapters of the book, we see that the greatest challenge that the people of God face in the book of Ezra is not an external one, but rather it's an internal one. Will the people of God remain faithful to God? Will they be undivided in their loyalty? Will they stay the course? I said then, let's turn our attention to the beginning of chapter 9. And this morning we're just going to look at five verses. But I think in those five verses, we're going to see the great challenge facing the people of God. And again, that great challenge is not necessarily an external one, but rather an internal one. Will the people remain faithful to their great God? So I said, if you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word here. Words will be on the screen. Ezra 9, verses 1 to 5. Again, just five verses this morning. The five verses that expose the internal challenge I think all of us face, but certainly the people God did in the book of Ezra. So chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says this. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. That's where we'll stop this week. You may be seated. It's the word of God. So by way of brief recap, let's just kind of set the stage for what's happening here in Ezra chapter 9. Again, in the book of Ezra, as you know, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, the people of God are returning from exile. Now, the exile was a result of their own sin, but in his mercy, God allows the people to come back to the land and begin the work of rebuilding the temple. And that's what we see happening in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. The people of God return from exile, and despite external opposition, they rebuild the temple. The work of rebuilding the temple is finished around 516 B.C. And again, that work of rebuilding the temple is the substance of the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. But then beginning in chapter 7, the focus changes. As has been pointed out in previous weeks, a time gap of about 50 or 60 years exists between chapter 6 and 7. Beginning in chapter 7, which is taking place around 458 BC, Ezra is sent to restore God's word to God's people. And that's the focus of chapters 7 and 8. Ezra comes to Jerusalem to restore the word of God to the people of God. Now chapter 9, which is where we're picking up the story this morning, probably takes place about four and a half months after Ezra first returned to the land. And in chapter 9, from the very beginning, it's clear there are some troubles within. The people of God have forsaken the commandments of God. And specifically, the people of God, including some of the leaders, have disobeyed God's commands in that they've married or given their children in marriage to the people of the land. Now, on numerous occasions in the Old Testament, God gave specific commands regarding marriage and specific commands regarding who not to marry. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, God talks about his people entering the land they're about to possess, and he gives this command. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Now, in saying that, here's something you need to understand this morning. Passages like the one in Deuteronomy 7 that I just mentioned, and like the one that we're reading in Ezra 9, have been seriously misunderstood and seriously misinterpreted and misapplied over the years. So I think it's important before we do anything else this morning that we clarify what is happening here in Ezra 9 and what is not happening. 
So let me just start by saying what's not happening here. When God commanded his people not to marry the people of the land, he was not forbidding interracial marriage or labeling interracial marriage as sin. As Pastor Mark Dever points out in this commentary on this passage, God's command in Deuteronomy 7 or the words here in Ezra 9 are not about skin pigment or racial purity. Ezra 9.2 is not an example of xenophobia or racism. In fact, it's not about race at all, and that's what you need to understand this morning. It's about religion. It's about the danger of idolatry. By idolatry, we just mean the worship of other gods. And that's why Deuteronomy 7.4 is so important in understanding what's happening here in Ezra 9. Now remember, Deuteronomy 7.3, I just read it. God commanded the people not to marry the people of the land. But in Deuteronomy 7.4, he gives the rationale. And so at this point, I'm going to ask Micah to throw Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4 on the screen because I want you to see both of these verses together. This is important. If you're going to understand what's happening here in Ezra 9, you need to understand what's happening in Deuteronomy 7. All right, so here it is, Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4. Again, the verse I just read plus the next verse. It says this, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So I want you to hear this and hear it clearly this morning. The issue in Ezra 9 is not interracial marriage. The issue is potential idolatry. As evidenced by the stories of people like Ruth or Rahab, God has no issues with interracial marriage. The issue is that God wants his people to be wholeheartedly committed to him. He wants their undivided loyalty. And God knows that if his people married those who followed other gods, it would only be a matter of time before his people's hearts would be drawn to those idols. This is why the discussion in verse 2 is about the faithlessness of the people. Because the issue has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. God doesn't want his people to marry those who don't worship him because he knows their hearts will be drawn towards those other gods. For the same reason, the New Testament tells us not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. To again quote Mark Dever, God has always wanted his people including his post-exile people, to be preserved from idolatry, from spiritual adultery, from cheating on God, so that they will persevere in faithful, faithfulness to God. So he says to them, don't marry people who don't worship me. So let's not get confused by what's happening here in Ezra 9, because again, this passage has been misinterpreted and misapplied in many ways over the years. So let's just make sure we're on the same page here. Ezra is not against non-Israelites. In fact, Ezra 6.21 reminds us that God welcomes any outsider, any non-Israelite, the Ruth or Rahabs of the world, who believe in and worship the one true God. Furthermore, the issue here in Ezra 9 is not about interracial marriage. Again, as evidenced by people like Ruth or Rahab or multiple others in the Old Testament, God is not concerned about interracial marriage, provided the couple, both of them, is worshiping the one same God. The issue here in Ezra 9 then is simply this that the people of God had not separated themselves from the religious practices of the land. They were giving themselves to idolatry, and this was evidenced by their marriages. So again, just to make sure we're on the same page from the start here, the issue in Ezra 9, not about race, is ultimately not even about marriage. It's about the people having a heart that is undivided in loyalty to God. And therein was the great threat for the people of God in the book of Ezra. The people of God had abandoned their loyalty to God. So having said all that, I think we can summarize the main point of Ezra 9, 1 to 5, then in this way. The people of God are called to be undivided in their loyalty to God and avoid any distraction or obstacle that might keep them from wholehearted pursuit of God. 
Let me say it again because I think it's important to understand. This is the main point. The people of God are called to be undivided in their loyalty to God and avoid any distraction or obstacle that might keep them from wholehearted pursuit of God. Now you should know that main point is entirely consistent with the overall theme of the Old Testament. And for that matter, it's entirely consistent with the New Testament. Even in the book of James, which we studied this summer, James was relentless in pounding home this same point. That we are to be undivided in our loyalty to God. That we are to avoid any distraction or obstacle that might keep us from wholehearted pursuit of God. If you wanted to sum up what it means to be a Christian and to follow Christ in a word, you might sum it up in the word loyalty. To be a Christian is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. It's to prioritize him above everything else. It's to see Jesus as the great treasure and live accordingly. And so in light of that reality, in light of what we read here in Ezra 9, I think the application then for us this morning is fairly straightforward. We, as the people of God now who are in Christ, should be undivided in our loyalty to God. And like the challenge here in Ezra 9, we should avoid any distraction or obstacle that might keep us from wholehearted pursuit of God. Again, the challenge for the people in Ezra 9 and the challenge for us today is the same. Will we be faithful to God? Will we be loyal? The goal of the Christian life is faithfulness. It's to finish the race and keep the faith. It's to be loyal to the one who deserves our loyalty. I think that's where this passage is really helpful. I think this passage actually leads itself naturally to some application questions that we can ask towards that end of trying to be loyal to God. Again, the heart of the passage here is about loyalty to God and avoiding obstacles or distractions that might keep us from that loyalty. And the way in which the passage unfolds, I think, leads naturally to three application questions for us this morning related to our own loyalty. So that's how I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning, just entertaining these application questions. So application question number one is simply this. Is there anything in your life that is distracting you from wholehearted devotion to God? Is there anything in your life that is distracting you from wholehearted devotion to God? Look again at the way the passage starts here in verses one and two. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost." Again, for the people in Ezra 9, the issue was idolatry. They had not separated themselves from non-believers. They were following the practices of those around them. Rather than worshiping and obeying the commands of the one true God, they were following and practicing and worshiping other gods, which again is the definition of idolatry. And the way in which this was demonstrated was their marriages. Quite simply, they were marrying non-believers. And in doing so, they were demonstrating their ultimate loyalty wasn't to God, but to their own desires. So again, marriage is not the issue here. It's just a symptom of the issue. The primary issue was a lack of loyalty to God. So again, the question I would ask you this morning is, is there anything in your life that's distracting you from wholehearted devotion to God? Now, having said that, I think it's instructive here that marriage was the presenting symptom of the root issue. And so perhaps if we're going to talk about things that are going to distract us, it's helpful for us to start in the same place by talking about relationships. 
Because the fact of the matter is that our relationships are oftentimes a barometer of our devotion to God. Specifically, as is the case here in Ezra 9, the marriage relationship. We often tell our kids that probably the second most important decision they'll ever make after their decision to follow Christ is the decision if they're going to marry, and if so, who? And the reason why we say that is because of passages like this one in Ezra 9. The person we choose to marry is oftentimes a barometer of our devotion to God, and they also help to set the trajectory for the rest of our lives. When you're around someone all the time, that person and their beliefs inevitably rub off on you. To give a trivial example of this reality, as most of you know, I'm an Iowa State fan. The reason why I'm an Iowa State fan is not because Iowa State always wins. In fact, more times than not over the years, they lose. And it's not because it's the popular thing to do either. In fact, there's plenty of room on the bandwagon if you want to come. No, the reason why I'm an Iowa State fan is plain and simple. I'm a fan because both of my parents graduated from Iowa State. And from an early age, for better or worse, maybe worse, they influenced me. And that's the way it works, though, right? This is the way it works in the world. The people you are around all the time, they influence you. They shape you. They mold you. Which is why finding a spouse who's equally devoted to God is so important. So for those of you who are young or single, or maybe in some cases both young and single, but if you're young or single and you desire to be married one day, I just want to address you for a second here. I I know we are blessed in this church to have all kinds of young people. We're blessed to have lots of single people, too. So I just want to address that demographic for a second. And I want to challenge you to make a commitment in your mind that the person that you're going to date and eventually marry is as passionate or more passionate about Christ than you are. When I first became a Christian, I I would say my standards for dating were woefully simplistic. I would ask the question, is she cute? Is she fun to be around? Does she go to church? But as I grew my relationship with Christ, I realized that was a very watered-down standard. I mean, think about it this way. When your kid is sick or your life is falling apart, it won't matter in that moment if your spouse is cute, fun to be around, or goes to church. In the darkest moments of life, you need a spouse who's not good-looking or fun or religious. You need a spouse who clings to Christ with every fiber of their being. In other words, the standard should not be, do they go to church? Are they good-looking? Do they have fun? No, the standard should be, are they passionate about Christ? Is Christ the greatest treasure in their life? Do they love Jesus more than anything else? Now, of course, hopefully they're cute and fun to go to church, too. Those things are important, especially the church piece. But at the end of the day, you need to find someone who sees Christ as the greatest treasure. If not, it'll be much more difficult for you to pursue Christ yourself. Now, having said that, I do want to offer a word of encouragement here for those who are already married. And maybe you're married to someone who's not as passionate about Christ as you are. While I think it's true that it's much more challenging to pursue Christ when your spouse is not passionate, I want to encourage you, it's not impossible. In fact, over my years in ministry, I've known some very godly men and women who did not have spouses that were as passionate about Christ as they were. So I just want to encourage you this morning, praise God, it's possible to pursue Christ passionately even if your spouse is not passionate. But as evidenced by both observation and the testimony of Scripture, it's much more difficult. So again, I would just say for those of you who are young or single and desiring to be married, let me just challenge you this morning, prioritize finding a spouse who's as passionate about Christ or more so And they're challenging you to live with a passion for Christ yourself. Because as evidenced here in Ezra 9, relationships are one of the things that can distract us from wholehearted relationship, or excuse me, wholehearted devotion to God. But having said that, relationships, and in particular marriages, although the focus here in Ezra 9, are not the only thing that can distract us from wholehearted devotion to God. 
as we see throughout the rest of Scripture. There are plenty of other idolatrous pursuits that can distract us and keep us from wholehearted commitment to God. So again, my question for you is, what are those issues for you? What is it that distracts you from wholehearted devotion to God? To give another example, maybe for you it's not relationships, but instead it's money. Maybe it's money. Maybe you're consumed with money and the pursuit of money to the point that you're not pursuing God and his commands the way you ought to be. The pursuit of money is distracting you. It's keeping you from being undivided. It's throwing your priorities out of whack. A couple weeks ago, Tanya and I were able to get away to Colorado and get some time away from ministry and the busyness of life. And as part of that trip, we spent a day with our friends, the Hanemans. Now, I discipled Brian Haneman, the, the husband, during my college ministry years. But over the years, we've become really good friends with both Brian and his wife, Heather. And we have a ton of respect for them and the way in which they try to live their lives for Christ. At any rate, we went out to lunch with them while we were there. And we started talking about parenting at lunch and how hard parenting is. And over the course of that lunch, Brian started talking about a podcast he'd been listening to on parenting. And he shared something from that podcast that was convicting for me and also a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Brian talked about how in the old days, people would work alongside their kids and thus both fathers and mothers would be regularly interacting with their kids throughout the day. But all that changed dramatically with the Industrial Revolution. From that point forward, the parent-child relationship has been much different. We're just not around our kids as much as we used to be. Our jobs have taken us away. And yet, as the podcast pointed out, we are still called to parent our children and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we have this choice to make. This is the, the scenario that Brian was painting for us at lunch. We have this choice to make. We can devote ourselves to money now and pursue our jobs and try to make as much as we can so we can retire early and we can enjoy all these things. And in the process, it's likely we'll have a C or C-plus relationship with our kids. Or we can decide, well, money's not going to be our God, and we might have to work a few less hours and spend more time at home with our kids, investing in them as the Lord has called us to do, in the process, we'll have to work longer in life and have less of a retirement cushion, but potentially, we can have an A or A-plus relationship with our kids. And so the question Brian posed to us at lunch is, which would be better in the long run? Now, I understand that in asking that, Brian was obviously oversimplifying, and the podcast was oversimplifying the situation a little bit. Sometimes you have no choice but to work long hours, and sometimes you can prioritize not making money, and you can still have a bad relationship with your kids. So I'm not trying to paint with too broad a stroke here or oversimplify the situation or hang guilt on you. I'm just saying that for me, that was a bit of a light bulb moment because it forced me to ask the question, what are my priorities? What is it that I'm prioritizing in life? Am I prioritizing the things that God would have me prioritize or am I chasing after the things of this world? And I think we have to be honest here. In the United States in 2023, I think we prioritize money and possessions and materialism and wealth more than we're willing to admit. Now, I understand that sometimes we're dedicated to our jobs for different reasons, that maybe we find our identity in our jobs. But oftentimes, it is our love of money that's driving the decisions that we make. And for the record, I'm not just saying this is a you problem. This is a me problem. I think for all of us, this is a reality that we have to face living in the country that we do and the time period we do, that wealth and money are a real distraction. And there's a reason why, G why Jesus regularly talks about money and possessions as a distractor from kingdom pursuits, because they are. So again, I would just ask the question, is there anything in your life that's distracting you from wholehearted devotion to God? Maybe it's money, maybe it's relationships, or maybe it's something else. 
to loosely paraphrase John Calvin, our hearts are idol-making factories. There's no end to the amount of things that can distract us from wholehearted devotion to God. Even good things like family, sports, music, work, the desire to be like hobbies, even those good things can become idolatrous. Even those good things can distract us. So the question for you this morning is simply this, and the question for me is, what is it that distracts you? Now, to ask a question maybe a step further back, I think the question we might ask even before we get to that is simply this, are you even aware of the things that are distracting you from wholehearted devotion to God? Which brings us now to application question number two. Are you allowing the word of God the opportunity to expose and correct your idolatrous tendencies? Let me say that again. Are you allowing the word of God the opportunity to expose and correct your idolatrous tendencies? I want you to look again at how the passage starts. And I want you to notice something as we read here in verses one and two. All right, so let's just read it and then I'll point out what I think is worth noting. After these things have been done, the officials approached me. And said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For they've taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Now what I want you to notice here in verses 1 and 2 is that Ezra is not confronting and rebuking the people for their pursuit of idolatrous relationships. At least here. Rather, what's happening is they are coming to Ezra, and they're confessing their sins to him. Now, given the content of chapters 7 and 8, and the fact that Ezra, from what we can piece together, has probably been back in the land for about four and a half months, we're left to assume that the reason why they're coming to Ezra is they've been convicted by the teaching of God's word. Again, Ezra had been teaching for about four and a half months on the law of the Lord. And as Ezra was teaching the law of the Lord, it would seem at some point they became convicted. We're not doing what it says. The word of God was correcting them. And it's for that reason that they're coming to Ezra and saying, we're not doing what's right. But listen, this is what the word of God does. It is like a mirror. In the same way that a mirror reveals our blemishes or flaws, the piece of spinach that's on our tooth, the the dirt that's on our forehead. The word of God, in the same way, exposes our sin. It helps us to see ourselves correctly. Now listen, I know this will be hard for you to believe for those of you who are married, but every once in a while, Tanya and I will get in an argument. I know that doesn't happen to you, but it does for us some. And when that happens, I'm usually convinced I'm right and she's wrong. And most of the time, I'm right. No, I'm just kidding. Most of the time, she's right. That's true. Most of the time, she's right. But in my stubbornness, my initial reaction is to hold fast to my rightness. To think in my head, of course I'm right, and of course she's wrong. I'm just going to wait till she apologizes because she owes it to me. But what often breaks me out of my hard-hearted stubbornness is the Word of God. In particular, when we get in arguments, the Spirit has a habit in my life of drawing me back to Ephesians 5. And the call in that chapter for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And as the Spirit draws my mind back to that passage, I'm reminded that Christ loved me while I was still his enemy. That's Romans 5. While I was still in the wrong, he reached out and initiated reconciliation. And that's the same for you too, by the way. And so given that reality, I know then that my responsibility as one who's called to love my wife like Christ loved the church is to initiate reconciliation even if I feel like I'm right. Because this is what Christ did. Christ initiated reconciliation with me even when I was in the wrong. 
God uses his word, in this case for me oftentimes, Ephesians 5, to correct and redirect my heart. But this is what the word of God does. Even the last couple of weeks I shared that God recently has, has convicted me through Psalm 55 that I was too self-reliant. Instead of casting my burdens on him, I was trying to bear them myself. The word of God corrected me. And listen, if you're a serious Christian, then I'm sure you could also testify to the times in which the word of God has corrected you. Now hear me clearly. The word of God is a great encouragement. The word of God is filled with hope and good news. But the word of God also, on occasion, corrects and admonishes us in our sin. Which is why it's not surprising, by the way, that neglecting God's word and sin often go hand in hand. If you encounter a professing Christian who's stuck in sin, more oftentimes than not, that person is not regularly spending time in God's word. Now, there's exceptions that, of course, I've met men or women who are, who are saying they're reading the Bible every day and still living wild sin. But those people are the exceptions. In general, as the old phrase goes, sin keeps us from the word and the word keeps us from sin. Listen, church, if you're serious about pursuing Christ and defeating sin, and I hope you are, then you will be serious about the word of God. Regular Bible reading is one of the tools that God uses to help us see our sin. Coming together on Sunday mornings to hear the word of God preached, this too is a tool that God uses to help us see our sin. Even this week, as I've been studying for this passage, I've been convicted that there are things I've allowed in my life that have distracted me from the joy that comes in following Jesus. And for the sake of your own joy, I hope the word of God is convicting you this morning too. Just like the people in Ezra 9 were convicted by the word of God, so too should we, as the people of God, be convicted by the word of God. But for that to happen, we have to be dedicated to spending time in his word, both individually and corporately. That's the value, by the way, of coming together. And there is something about actually coming together and not just hearing it online, but coming together that the spirit works in a unique way. We need the word of God in our life. And I have no doubt that if we put the word of God in our lives, the spirit will work and the Spirit will open our eyes to our sins graciously. By the way, it is gracious when He opens our eyes to our sin. And when that happens, the response ought to be one of humility and repentance, which is what we see here happening in Ezra 9. And in fact, that brings us to our third and final application question. When confronted with your sin, do you grieve your sin and come to God with an attitude of repentance? Again, I'll just ask that question again. When confronted with your sin, do you grieve your sin and come to God with an attitude of repentance? Look at verses 3 to 5 here. Verse 3. As soon as I heard this, this is Ezra talking, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the return next, I was gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So when Ezra hears about the people's sin, he does not dismiss it or justify it or excuse it. He does not ignore it. Instead, he grieves it. He tears his garments. He pulls his hair from his head. He pulls his hair from his beard. He sits appalled. Now, I thought about asking Jim to come up this morning and pluck some hair from his beard in order to demonstrate how serious this must have been. But I don't think we need a demonstration. I'm sure Jim is happy to know he doesn't need to come up. I don't think he needs to come up for you to understand how serious this is. Now, granted, this is not the way we responded to sin, but all of the responses in verse 3 were culturally specific indications that he was taking sin seriously, that he was grieving it. 
And as verse 4 would indicate, so are the people. As verse 4 tells us, all who trembled at the word of God, which is a great phrase, by the way. All who trembled at the word of God gathered with Ezra, and they sat appalled with him. Hear this. A person who truly loves God's word and trembles at his word, in other words, respects it, reveres it, will also be a person who trembles at sin. I've run into a few people over the years in various counseling situations who claim to know and love God and love his word, and yet they show no remorse over their sin. And in retrospect, I would just say this, that seems impossible. To be a person who respects God's word and trembles at it is also to be a person who trembles at sin and hates sin. Rest assured, if you're confronted by your sin and your response is to dismiss it or justify it or ignore it, something is wrong. Because when the people of God are confronted by their sin through the word of God and the action of the Spirit, the Spirit-filled response, as we see here in Ezra 9, should be one of humility and repentance. It should be one of coming to God, acknowledging our wickedness and pleading for his mercy, which is what we see happening at the very end of the passage. It's not just that Ezra plucks his beard and sits appalled. It's that he runs to God in humility and repentance. Look again at verse 5. It says this, And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So Ezra falls on his knees here in humility. He spreads out his hand in an act of neediness, and then he cries out to the Lord his God. Now the substance of what he cries out, that's what we'll look at next week. But for now, what we want to acknowledge is that his instinct when confronted with sin, and by the way, it's not even his own sin. It's the sin of his people, which that's probably worth meditating on. But when confronted with the sin of his people, his response is to grieve the sin and come to God with an attitude of repentance. Now having said that, I think we should be honest here. Our first instinct may not always look exactly like this. In our house, we regularly talk about how my response when confronted with sin is usually better about 24 hours later. If Tony or the kids confront me on something, I need some time to process. So my first instinct, I'm just going to be honest, is not usually to be like Ezra right away. It takes me some time to get there, but hopefully I get there. And hopefully you get there too. Because humble repentance is a necessary part of the Christian life. Now having said that, here's the really good news this morning. If we humbly repent, and if we come to him, he is waiting with open arms. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus died for sinners like us. Sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead. He now intercedes for us. And if we acknowledge our sins, as 1 John told us earlier, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we should be quick to humble ourselves and run to him because in Christ, hear this, there is forgiveness to be found. In fact, the forgiveness of sins is at the heart of the gospel message. And it's the reason why we gather together because we recognize we need his grace. And we want to celebrate the fact that we've received it. Which is why it always mystifies me that people come to church and then try to pretend like they have it all together. Listen, I'm just going to let you in on a little bit of secret this morning, okay? We all know you're a sinner. You're not fooling anybody. We all know that you need forgiven. And just to let you in on a secret, I'm a sinner too and I need forgiven also. But that's actually the reason why we're here, is it not? That we recognize that we need forgiveness and that forgiveness is found in Christ. Listen, I know that people love to accuse the church of being filled with hypocrites and frauds. And my response to that is, guilty as charged. Yes, we're messed up, but in Christ, there's hope of forgiveness. And if we're in Christ, 
hopefully every day we're growing a little bit more so that we're becoming a little bit less messed up. So listen, here's the bad news from today's passage. The bad news is the greatest danger is not out there as much as we'd like to think it is. It's in here. And no doubt there'll be times where we wander from our path and we'll need the word of God to bring us back. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. If we humble ourselves and come to him and repent, there is forgiveness to be found. So listen, church, we need to be honest enough to recognize there's a danger within. And we need to recognize that there are things that distract us from wholehearted pursuit of God. And we need to let the word of God open our eyes to see those things. And then we need to repent. When confronted with our sin, we need to turn from it. But we also need to delight in the fact that there is forgiveness to be found. And it's found in the person work of Jesus Christ. So church, let's be serious about our sin, but let's also delight in the fact that there's forgiveness found in Jesus. Let's pray. Yeah, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for your word, which does expose our sin, but also, as we look at the rest of the message of the Bible, reminds us there is forgiveness to be found. And this morning, we pray that we would delight in that forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the great tools God has given us to remind us of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ and of the forgiveness that can be found is the tool of the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's table together, what we're doing is we're confessing that we are sinners, but Christ died on the cross for our sins and he rose three days later. And because of that, we have hope. And so what I'd encourage you to do this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, is to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Practically speaking, there are five tables located around the sanctuary, two in the back, three up front. Here in just a minute, we're going to have some music to allow you to reflect. When you're ready, you can come get the elements. Take the elements back with you to your seats. We'll take them together here at the end. If you're not a Christian, you're here today. First of all, we want you to know we're glad you're here. And our, our plea with you is to consider the free, free offer of the gospel. We would encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper today, but we would encourage you to reflect on the fact that you are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And if you turn to him, you can be rescued. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll turn our attention to the Lord's table here. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together today and to remember and delight in the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.